This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. I'm here with my main man, Colin. What's up, dude? What's up, man? And we are joined today by Ryan Baker of Arc Aerial. What's up, dude? How's it going, guys? Well, not much, man. It's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know you said you've been busy, so kind of give everybody an overview of kind of what you guys do. Yeah, well, we are a enterprise drone as a service company. So we come in and act as basically a bolt-on drone department for oil and gas companies and commercial general contractors, but handle everything start to finish. So flight, data processing, data analytics and reporting. So do that for both of those industries and been growing quite a bit. So what are some of the applications in oil and gas that you guys are focused on? Yeah, well, so we focus really a lot on midstream oil and gas right now, and they're starting to go into upstream. But in particular for midstream oil and gas, we're performing inspections on federally regulated pipelines. So typically that means weekly or biweekly encroachment surveys where we're looking for potential instances where there might be construction on the right-of-way that we can prevent a strike. Uh, and we work with the midstream operators themselves to keep an eye out for that. And we also work on capital projects, too. So where they're building new pipelines, we're doing before and after progress documentation. So they can kind of cover their butts and access roads or issues with leaseholders or property owners. So we kind of span both sides of that business. I thought that was interesting. Drone as a service, DAS. I haven't heard that term before. Yeah, me too. That's new. <laughs> So what's the distinction between a federally regulated pipeline and any other pipelines? How come that's y'all's main focus? Well, federally regulated lines have to be flown. It's regulated by FIMSA. They have to be flown every three weeks at least to view the pipeline and see where there might be instances of encroachment, you know, whether it's construction or people on the right of way or kids in their trucks mudding on the right of way. So, you know, that's been done for a long time and, you know, it's typically done by traditional manned aircraft. So what we're doing is coming in with drone technology and providing better data that's more cost effective and it's more efficient for their pipeline inspectors who have to go out and actually intervene. You know, they're more efficient. They've got more data. We provide all the metadata and photographs of what happens. So it's really, really useful for them. So the drone is really just a means to an end for the actual data that you guys are delivering. Do you guys have like a platform or something that that kind of comes to? Or is there, does it go to their systems or how does that work? Yeah, you know, it depends on the operator. We kind of pride ourselves on building a custom solution for each operator because at the end of the day, you know, they all have their own flavor of how they have built their process. So, you know, they can do it locally. They can access our data online. We've kind of built two pathways to the same thing so that it's easier for them. Okay. So do you guys have a certain types of sensors that you equip on the drones that capture, was it like thermal, maybe like leak detection, things like that? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, it's amazing how much it's changed over the past few years. We started the company back in 2012 and, and that was the early days. Now there's visible spectrum, which is your regular digital camera that includes GPS data with it. There's infrared cameras, and there's something called LiDAR. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that, but it's a laser scanner that builds a 3D model that's highly accurate. It's like 700,000 points per second, so you get a really accurate topographic map. So there's all sorts of different payloads you can put on it, but it just depends on what questions you're trying to answer. Sounds a lot more high-tech than my <laughs> Mavic Pro <laughs> drone. <laughs> how, how, so to kind of give the listeners like some context, how big are these drones? 
You know, it depends. We fly small quadcopters all the way up to the larger commercial quadcopters. Quadcopter meaning four? Four rotor, yeah. And, you know, there's two different types of drones. There's ones that are called multi-rotor, and those are the ones that you see, you know, on the news that have four rotors. And then there's fixed-wing drones that are, you know, look like airplanes. And they they both have their benefits, but uh, primarily use multi-rotors just because it allows us to get really accurate data and get into places where you typically otherwise wouldn't with a fixed wing. So with drones like that, do they have like some like the stabilization stuff that I know like the Mavic Pro does? I'm sure they do. Obviously, they're (laughs) a lot more expensive. I'm just kind of, I've never played with one, so I don't know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, like I said, it's, it's progressed quite a bit since we started, but, you know, we're able to do automatic flight plans. So we map out where we're going and takes it from start to finish. Our pilots are there to intervene if we need to. But, you know, we basically plan a waypoint flight plan and allow it to just go from there. So do you have to have somebody actually manning it or can you like set it up like a Roomba and like, you know, draw, you know, geofencing and then have them essentially scout whatever, maybe like right away? Or does it have to be manned? Right now, the way the regulations are set, you have to have a pilot. Okay. Is that changing? Down the road, it's, I think we're still a good ways away from there being a drone in a box and it goes up without any live supervision. We're starting to get into beyond visual line of sight, and we can go into the regulations, but right now, by default, you have to have somebody that can see the drone. You have to have somebody within visual line of sight. The FAA is now starting to grant what are called waivers for people to fly beyond visual line of sight, so where you can't see the drone, but you still have to have a pilot manning it and have telemetry. Yeah, I was going to ask you what some of the barriers were in this industry, because I know line of sight, whether it's manned, unmanned, but... Let's kind of rewind it back a little bit. I'm interested about your background because obviously you have a lot of knowledge about drones, but where did you get the oil and gas background? What gave you this idea? And we'll we'll come back to some of the questions about the drones themselves because I have a lot that I've been writing down over here, but I want to know a little bit about you. Give us your, your life story and how you got into this. Yeah. Well, you know, we got into oil and gas well, after we started the company, you want me to go that far back to where we yeah, started? Yeah, yeah, go, go, go all the way back. <laughs> so 2012, I was a student at the University of Texas. I was studying archaeology and pre-med, believe it or not. Okay, I wouldn't have guessed that. Wait, how do you combine those two together? <laughs> Somehow I was able to get a counselor to let me do it. So You were trying to work at Jurassic Park, weren't you? Yeah, well, that's the dream, right? <laughs> so yeah, I was working on these archaeological excavations as a student. One in particular in 2012 was in central Italy. I uh, had the opportunity to work with a brilliant guy who's now assistant professor at the University of Maryland. His name's Taylor Oshan, but he and I had a joint project where we were getting the GPS locations of every artifact that they had excavated there since 1966. And it was a huge project because the further you go back, the worse the data is. But they were really forward thinking and trying to get everything together. We wanted to put aerial imagery with this database. And we found out that all that they had was a photo from 2007 that they had gotten from an Italian group that uh, had staked a weather balloon in the ground and run a digital camera up it. And so they got one photo and it was like 1% of the site. So we wanted more data. So at the end of the season, I, you know, thought about it and I'd seen drones on YouTube and talked to some professors about it and decided uh, I just want to start a company. Let's see where it goes and see if we can build drones for universities to use on research projects. So pulled together a team, I got together, started interviewing fellow students and asking professors who their favorite students were, got a uh, business student and a physics student and then a web designer on board. And we were off to the races to try to develop hardware. 
So we started out as a hardware company. So that was into 2012. We raised a seed round with an angel investor. And in 2013, we spent all our time prototyping and field testing. So that summer, we went back to three different excavations, one in Central America, one in the Mediterranean, or two in the Mediterranean, and tested out this hardware that we were designing. We were 3D printing parts. We were getting all these different electronics together and putting together these systems and eventually patented one and got a provisional patent on, on another. And by the time we got to the beginning of 2014, we were selling these to most major universities. So we were going to geology departments, archaeology departments, folks that wanted to capture aerial data cheaply that were typically paying aircraft to go do it. So you guys really started out as a drone manufacturer. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was it was a bold move, I think, because, you know, it's really hard to compete at scale with you know, the big Chinese manufacturers. And obviously that's the way to go now. I think there's some American manufacturers that have, that have really come to the fore. But, you know, at the time it was kind of the wild west. There weren't any drone regulations. But, you know, in 2014, when we were selling this hardware, we'd kind of eyed that we wanted to make the transition to providing services because we would sell these drone kits. But then, you know, we would often get asked, well, can you come operate it for us on these projects and training services? And, there were a lot of different opportunities, but we saw the services side of the business to be a really, really unique opportunity. So at the end of 2014, the FAA came out with its first set of drone regulations, which was called the Section 333 Exemption Program. And that was the first set of drone regulations as it related to commercial operation in the U.S. Before that, it was the Wild West. Nobody knew if they were doing things that were legal or illegal. It was kind of a gray area in terms of operating commercially. And the FAA came out with this program. It was really interesting because when they came out with it, it was super strict. It was basically impossible to fly in populated areas because you had to have permission from any non-participating personnel within 500 feet. So that included parked cars, buildings, people. So if you wanted to try to fly something in a Anywhere that had any remote population, it was pretty much impossible. Was that just applied to commercial drones or was that for consumer drones as well? Well, that was kind of the, the paradox because you could fly it as a hobbyist. It, there were not really that many rules. But if you fly it commercially and they defined it like even if you were building a promotional video for your business, you had to have a 333 exemption. So it was basically limited to flying on farms and really rural areas. So... 2015, we got our Section 333 exemption. We were one of the first 125 companies to get one. I think Google was in the same class as us that week. It eventually got to 8,000, so we were in it early. And it was kind of a unique position because it capped the number of competitors in the United States market. And we had a list of who our competitors were because that was the only way to operate commercially. So at the time, it was, I think it was a really unique position because it was capped based on who had this license. And so, uh, yeah, we made the pivot in 2015 to being a drone as a service company. And we were, you know, off to the races trying to figure out what the best market was and what the best service was. And, you know, from there, we've kind of evolved our market focus and really developed our services to where we're at now. But that was kind of how we got to today. There was another regime change in terms of the drone regulations in 2016. And that was called the Part 107 program. So now there's a drone license, remote pilot license that you can get from the FAA. It's a 60-question exam, written exam, and it's a lot easier to operate now. You don't have that 500-foot restriction. 
you know, you can fly 400 feet above ground level in uncontrolled airspace. And there's still a lot of uh, interesting parts to that regulation, but it's a lot easier to operate now than it was with Section 333. So you made that pivot into a service company. I know you're, you know, you're not specific to any industry. I'm not just oil and gas. You guys do commercial construction projects, things like that. But what made you kind of start looking at oil and gas? Was it just being native here to Houston, being around oil and gas? Is your family oil and gas? How did you kind of discover that midstream opportunity? Well, you know, we tried to look at where's the best opportunity for us to grow and where's the least market penetration and and opportunity for us to really plant our flag. And midstream oil and gas has been that for us for sure. At the start, when we started offering services, you know, it's kind of that same conversation that you hear if you meet somebody that's in that does anything with drones, there's like you could use it for this or that or roof inspection or, you know, herding sheep or there's like a million different things that people think of that relates to, you know, what they do in their life. But, you know, we found that we we really needed to focus in on some core competencies. And, you know, I think that's been one of our really big keys to success. But one of those was oil and gas. We saw the opportunity. We're here in Houston. We've got a lot of connections into the industry and we're learning a lot about where things could be updated in terms of process. You guys know things move slow in terms of technology adoption a lot of times out, out in the oil field. So That kind of takes me to my next point. I wanted to ask you, how is the adoption of drone technology over manned aircraft and how has that transition been for the oil and gas industry from your take? I mean, are they pretty accepting of it or still a little resistant? Yeah, you know, I think it's an interesting time right now. Everybody is familiar with drones. They've seen drones. Somebody they know has one, maybe a family member, even if it's a smaller or, um, you know, consumer drone. So they understand the benefits, but I don't think they understand the extent to which it's more efficient. And so I guess to answer your question, they're really receptive now to adopting the technology and especially the service. You know, a lot of times these guys aren't really interested in starting up their own drone department and maintaining them and everything that goes with that, including up to, you know, the insurance that's required to fly over really high dollar assets. So, you know, we found that they're really receptive to what we're doing because at the end of the day, what they want is really good data. And that's what we're providing. You know, they don't really care how you get it. But, you know, this is one way to get really great data and a lot more than they typically got previously and for the same or cheaper price. It's really interesting. Like you think about people just becoming familiar with consumer drones. I mean, it wasn't, you know, five years, everybody was sketched out by drones. Like, oh, if I see a drone flying around, I'm going to shoot it out of the sky with a shotgun, you know, and think that people are spying on you. But now it's just kind of, I want to say it's still a common thing because Mm -hmm. if we take out the Mavic Pro, you know, people still come around and look at it and, you know, they're still in awe. But it's a lot more of a, a common thing just among consumer basis. And I mean, shit, we fly little pocket drones in my house now, I mean, the little kids. So I could see that, you know, just over the five years, how people have become more familiar with them. Now, when they're in these positions where they can use them commercially, they they understand them a little bit more. Probably still don't understand them to the extent of the benefits that they provide, like you said, because I know I don't. I don't understand what all could be done with a drone other than, you know, recording 4K 
video. Yeah, I think, you know? I think on the service level, the one of the major value propositions is probably cost compared to, you know, flying over a manned aircraft. Actually, I've got a buddy who used to do that over the pipelines, but now he works for a satellite company that does essentially the same thing. But that's also extremely expensive if you know how much you're actually paying for, for satellite, whether that's for... I mean, anything involving a satellite is expensive. So we used to actually, so with satellites, somebody owns a satellite and then you rent out space on that satellite. And so we used to do field ops, the Marine Corps, just a training exercise for like two weeks. We spend a few million dollars on a satellite. Yeah. Let's talk about that because, you know, Jake, we've had some conversations about that, that you have some startups out of Silicon Valley that are focused on shooting up, you know, many satellites into orbit and mapping out, you know, whatever it may be. What's your take on that, and how will that affect the drone business short-term or long-term? Do you ever see that being a cost-effective solution for midstream companies that are looking to do inspections, or will it ever be able to provide a accurate inspection of a pipeline? I'm not sure. You know, I think right now the price point isn't there, like Jacob was saying. I think from what I've heard from our customers, it's just not nearly cost-efficient. But down the road, maybe. You know, I don't know if Elon gets the price of launching things in the space. 15, 20 years. Yeah, things going to look a lot different. (laughs) But, you know, I think right now the drone as a service or, you know, the data that's being delivered by drone is so cheap in comparison. And it's so much better than what they're getting typically. You know, it's kind of a no-brainer for them, which is great from a sales perspective. But I think it's helped the adoption rate for sure. So right now you're kind of bound by line of sight operating how far is that range typically? I mean, I'm sure it's you know dependent on weather and other conditions, but how does the operation actually work when someone takes a drone out to inspect a pipeline? I mean, do they have to get in a, a four-wheeler or a truck and drive alongside it and operate it like that, and how does that work? You know, it depends on the size of the drone, which seems like a really simple answer, but the larger the drone, the easier it is to see further away. Weather conditions can change that. If you're in rural areas, you can drive alongside as the drone progresses, but the person driving can't be the pilot. But, you know, if you're in populated areas, then you can't do that. So it just depends on where you're at and where the asset's located. How high could you fly a drone up if you, I mean, could it literally just go right up in space if you didn't lose connectivity? (laughs) Well, the air gets too thin once you get too high. (laughs) (laughs) The air gets too thin once you get to a certain altitude. We've never gone above 400 feet AGL, although you can now fly... 400 feet above buildings that are, you know, so there's like a a little bit of a buffer there. You know, these things could go way higher though than the operating range within the regulations. So I don't know what the maximum altitude would be, but I'm sure there's some crazy people. Have you ever seen anybody actually skydive and then throw the drone out there as well? (laughs) Did they do that? I I don't know. I just thought of it. (laughs) I think that'd be really cool though. You have a drone flying and just like recording everybody that's like, you know, jumping out. You said it like you'd watch a YouTube video of someone doing it. Maybe somebody like Red Bull's done it. That sounds like something crazy (laughs) that they would do. If they haven't yet, they will now. I saw one video on YouTube that not to go down the YouTube rabbit hole, but I think DARPA was uh, testing out launching a drone bomb in quotes, that from an F-16, they'll deploy like thousands of drones that will go swarm a target, Yep, loiter around that. it. Yep. There's it, some crazy makes drone sense. technology. I think it was Rolls-Royce. I don't know if you saw this, but they have the drones that will crawl through a engine block and inspect an engine block, just like these little bug looking things. So, you know, I think That's when, kind of scary. when people think of drones and robotics, they always think of quadcopters or whatever it may be. But, yeah. you know, there's a lot of cool robotic technology out there. So the other day, a guy told me, 
I don't know if this is true or not. This is just what I was told. But he told me that a Predator drone, one drone could survey all of the Permian Basin at one time. One, do you know if that's factually accurate? And two, would it ever be economically viable for unmanned aircraft like that that's that high tech to be used in these applications or are we always going to kind of use these smaller commercial drones i'm not sure the exact range on a predator drone it's got to be over a thousand miles though i would assume so i don't think that decommissioned predator drones are going to be what what are being used to survey pipelines there are though sort of a class of drones in between the commercially available enterprise drones and predator drones that are long-range fixed wings that are definitely the way of the future. And we're we're figuring out which platform we want to use right now because that's going to be the way of the future for us is beyond visual line of sight, long-distance flights. But in terms of scalable recurring operations right now, that's not really occurring in the United States. But it's going to get there eventually. Yeah, you mentioned the fixed-wing drones earlier. How do those operate? I mean, you know, if you have a quadcopter, obviously you got your rotors, but how does a fixed-wing actually work? I mean... Is it electric? Just like a plane. Yeah, there's models that are electric. There are models that are gas, but it's, you know, essentially a fixed wing aircraft. It's got either a pusher or a puller propeller. And, you know, the reason they can go so much further is that with a fixed wing aircraft, not to get too in the weeds, but you have constant lift with the wing. So you get a lot more efficient flight per unit of energy. So you can go a lot further. A multi-rotor where you're constantly hovering. So Yeah, you're constantly having to generate power to keep it up. Right, right. When it comes to actually collecting information, I have no clue how you guys store it, but do you guys have any issues with lack of data connectivity at certain sites? Like at our wells, we have no cell phone service for like 30 miles probably. Or does the drone store it on the device and then you have to extract the data afterwards? Yeah, so we right now for most of our applications don't have a need for a live feed. So we're able to have a little bit of a buffer to bring that down and deliver it to the customer. But still, a lot of times we're delivering it same day or within 24 hours. So we've got our own systems pulled together, both in the outfit that we have on the gear and then also on our cloud system. So we use our own version of AWS that we've been putting together to do fast data processing and then also to deliver the data. So we've kind of built a pipeline for pushing that out pretty quickly. We had a conversation about this a while back. And the way that I kind of imagine drones in kind of like the future of oil and gas, specifically, I guess more specific, I mean, it could be across the industry, but I guess more specific to upstream and with wells is sometimes it's so hard when you're talking with, you know, we have, you know, either it's our pumpers or roustabout crews or crude haulers, whoever is out there and it's in Oklahoma and we're not there and they don't have really have like cell phone reception. But if we were to get past that issue, if you had a drone, like, I don't know if you've seen drones at conferences that like, that like literally walk around, there's an iPad and there's like a dude's face on Skype. If we were able to like essentially walk alongside and see something like, so like we have a washout on one of our lease roads, we don't know where it's at. We have no clue, but we have to fix it before we can sell it the lease. So if we had a drone that we could literally walk alongside the pumper and like, you know, take video or like a live feed or you're not, pictures. You're not or, telling them the full concept. We also th- thought there should be a garage. A for drone, drone garage <laughs> to keep it from getting weathered. So you have this door pop up. You know, we got our old our old pumper out there, and he gets the shit scared out of him when this garage door opens up and this drone comes crawling out. <laughs> There's people that are thinking about doing that, that type of solution. But I think, you know, on a more practical level, this is something we're already doing for a lot of big upstream companies that our company is doing is recurring mapping 
of well pads and the gathering systems in the roads. And we just do it on a recurring basis. And they have a database that they can access that has all the GPS location data, the metadata. They can pull a report if they want to. And like we talked about with the data management side, you know, we have the option to give them either the data to download to use on their own systems, or they can access it through the cloud on one of our services. So, I mean, that is absolutely an application. It's something we're doing now for a lot of big E&P companies. Very interesting. Are you guys using this in any uh, wind farm applications? I've seen even at, I think yeah. it was OTC, uh, I saw some drone demonstrations of how they're using them on windmills. Are you guys in that sector? Or? We're not focusing there. We did some inspection out in some West Texas wind farms a few years ago, but you kind of to the same point that I was making earlier, we've really focused in on oil and gas and that core group of commercial general contractors. So we haven't in a while. There's its own set of challenges and expertise. Yeah, get good at, at one niche and focus on that and be the expert in it. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about you guys as a business. You said you, you started in, what, 2012, 2013 timeframe. Now we're in 2019. Can you kind of talk to maybe some of the challenges that you guys have experienced? I know you said you've, you've raised funding a few times. Yeah, just kind of walk us through that. You know, what are the, what are the challenges that you've had and kind of where you're at and where are you guys going? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... I keep going back to it, but focus has been something that's been on my mind a lot lately because I think it's been a key factor for our growth in recurring revenue, which is at the lifeline of any business. You know, you can get a bunch of one-off projects, but the more you can get recurring revenue, recurring services, and build long-term relationships with customers, then the better off you are as a business. So, you know, in 2015, we were taking on any and all projects and looking at any and all outbound sales efforts. And now that we've focused in on midstream and upstream oil and gas and servicing those commercial general contractors, you know, we've developed a really great service that's scalable, that doesn't require unique one-off deliverable recreation or a lot of time developing new, new systems. We've built a great service that we're improving constantly. So I think that's been key. You know, one of the challenges with, I think, the amount of growth that we've been seeing is having the funds to keep up with that growth organically. So, you know, that's that's one thing that, you know, we've definitely had to do and we're finishing up around right now. But I think it's just uh, something that's necessary when you're faced with a ton of growth. you got to buy trucks, hire people. It's a good problem to have, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, shit, we're running out of money. We're growing too fast. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's hard to manage, though, at the same time. You know, you don't want to... You don't want to go out and raise too much unnecessary capital, give away equity in your company, but at the same time, you do need that capital to grow. So you got to be able to balance. Are you, these funds that you've done, you said that your original seed fund was from an angel investor. Are you guys going to venture capitalists to get these capital raises filled or are you still sticking to angel investors? You know, we're looking at any and all people that are interested, but our focus has been angel investors and family offices especially ones that have a focus in oil and gas because they understand the problems and the challenges that we're solving for the industry. So it, it just makes it an easier conversation because they understand what we're doing. I think that's a great strategy because your interests are aligned. And especially, it's probably important. I think it's important for any startup to have that conversation with potential investors on making sure that your goals are aligned in terms of the trajectory of the business. Yeah, you don't want unrealistic expectations from the investor because then it just comes a lose-lose situation. So one of the things you mentioned there was was going to to family offices. So we've raised money from angel investors. We've we've gone to venture capital. We've recently gone to private equity. We've never raised money from family offices. So what is that process like? I mean, how how does it differ from venture capital and angel investors? And 
How do you even get a hold of? How do you even find them? Yeah. There's always good old Google, but I think the way it typically works out is these are high net worth individuals that have maybe made a big exit. And typically they'll have one person that's exploring deals for them and then brings them to that person or to that group of family members. Typically it's one individual. In terms of goals and how the funds raise, I'm sure you guys are familiar with venture capital. They've got typically a 10-year fund. Private equity is the same thing. It's just like an order of magnitude larger in terms of the fund size. But that is a cycle that you have to be well aware of. With a family office, it could be that. It could be they want businesses that they're going to keep for a long time. It could be they want to make an exit when the right one comes along. So that's Lock just out their agendas on, a, yeah, right. on an individual basis. That makes sense. Yeah. So coming into 2019, what are some big goals for you and the company? What do you kind of see you know, from a year from now? What are some things that you want to accomplish? Well, I think we've developed a great service. And so we're in scale-up phase right now. You know, we've got great core customers. I think probably right now, we're probably flying more miles of pipeline by drone than per month than any other company in the U.S. So I want to continue to share that service with other pipeline operators. Right now, we've worked either for the operator or for the general contractor building pipelines for most of the major midstream companies. So really scaling out that service is the goal for 19. And it, with it, it's going to come a lot of growth. So we were talking about it earlier, but we're going to be, you Just know. Just had a random question pop up in my head. Is it pretty complicated to fly these quadcopter drones, these commercial drones? It depends on what you're trying to do. You know, there's manual flight, but there's also the autonomous flight is one thing, but it depends on where you're flying. So I think more complicated, especially for commercial operators, is making sure that you're in compliance with airspace regulations and also... If you're flying in areas that have a lot of manned aircraft traffic, you have to be really safety con I mean, you have to be safety conscious all the time, and, and we always are, but you have to be really conscious of the airspace around you because you always have to give way. The only reason I ask is because I want to come fly one, so <laughs> my next question off air, when can I come fly a drone? Well, I mean, you go buy a consumer drone like the Mavic Pro, and it's just mind-blowing the technology on those for a 1000 bucks. You can take it out of the box, and you don't have to have any experience flying. I mean, really, it's so easy that you can take it out, and it's like working joysticks on a video game. So I didn't know how much it would differ between a consumer drone like that and one of these big commercial drones because I remember like I would try flying I can even remember the brands you know several years back I tried flying the drones and I couldn't fly them and just crash them and so when you get some of these new consumer drones right out of the box and you can just you know up up and away it's it was like pretty. flying Windows Flight Simulator <laughs> you never get to take off you're always on the runway the whole game <laughs> Flight Simulator 2000 was like the bane of my existence as a kid I was like man I can't even get off the fucking runway <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it's definitely changed. I mean, now there's a lot of redundancies. They have redundant GPS systems. They've got smart return to home on, on some of these drones where it calculates the distance from where you took off from and where it's at and how much battery you have left so that you've got a buffer for it to come back autonomously if for some reason you know it's going further than it should. So the redundant features have definitely improved since we started. Yeah, I'm sure y'all's drones have changed you know, a ton since you started making them. And on that point, where, who is the one actually making the drones? Are you, do you have a team of co-founders? Your CEO, is it, you know, how many employees are you guys at right now? And how many founders did you start out with in those early days? So we started out with four founders total. And we don't manufacture equipment anymore, just to be clear. But when we were, we had our VP of engineering, who was one of the co-founders. We had an engineer from University of California, 
and we had UAV technicians, what their titles were, and they were helping us pump these things out. So back then we were at five employees and now we've switched. We don't have engineers on staff. We have GIS technicians and, and pilots. Um, GIS technicians handle all the data and, and do all the data processing. Back in those early days, were you all just like pumping out drones from the garage? Well, we had an office. Oh, so, man. Yeah. I was just thinking about a like underground drone building club in the garage. <laughs> well, there were days when, you know, when we were first prototyping, we were doing things, you know, kind of in the in the living room table and the, <laughs> the garage. Yeah. And 2014, we got our office. So we've been there ever since. Yeah. Cool. Well, sounds pretty exciting. You know, we talk, we kind of touch base on this. Anytime someone talks about drones, they think about aerial drones. And, you know, I think it's uh, BP that's using some drones and robotics for subsea inspections, mm-hmm. deep water. Are there any other applications that you guys or that you're excited about in the drones and robotic space outside of what you guys are working on? Yeah, I think there are, like we were talking about, there's so many different applications for this technology that it's going to change the way that data is captured and the amount of data that we're capturing, you know, we've got some projections that there are going to, you know, depending on how quickly we grow, we could be talking about petabytes of data, you know, in the next few years. So I'm really excited to see how we progress with utilizing that data, maybe even more than the actual data capture, because, you know, you can kind of see where that's going, but what's really going to be interesting is what kind of insights we can get from the data and the amount of data that we're capturing. So our pipeline customers see that right now. They're already getting better data right off the bat. They can send inspectors out more quickly and more efficiently. So I think that's only going to get more efficient. What are y'all going to do on the back end? So I know right now you can either deliver the data to the customer or they can go on the cloud and get access to it. Do you guys ever have any intention of providing any back end analytics of that data for them or partnering up with anybody? Are you guys going to try to utilize that data and help your clients, you know, take it a step further? Or are you just always going to plan on just turning over that data to them and letting them utilize it the way that they want to? So we do both. But I think one of the things that are company does really well is that we try to understand the points of pain for the end users of the data that we're producing. So more often than just, we don't really give out just raw data. We're producing customized reports that are specific to the job title of the person that's receiving it. So, you know, that comes in the form of, you know, all sorts of different ways to utilize that data. Like we talked about the web application or, you know, in actual PDF reports, it just depends on how they use it, whether that person's out in the field or behind a desk. I mean, that makes sense. You got to make the information digestible for them, right? You know, these aren't data scientists that you're sending the information over to. So, you know, it's no good if you just send them raw data and then it gets lost on their hard drive somewhere because they're like, what the hell do do I do with this? And then they don't see the value of the data that you're providing. So yeah, that makes sense to, to do that. Yeah, and, and we come in, too, and try to understand the, the way that they have received the data in the past as well, so that for them, it's not a huge cost of change to ingest the new reporting. We try to, you know, mold into that, but we give them the better data, the better reports, and so it's it's easier for them to transition. Awesome. So before we wrap this episode up, got to ask you, got to put you on the hot seat. Do you have any advice that you would give to startup founders, anybody that may have an idea that wants to go out on their own or any lessons learned from your experience over the last five or six years that really stick out to you? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. One of the things that I tried to do, especially back in 2014, 2015, where we were really starting to grow, is reach out and get a good network of mentors 
and that seems like the most cliche piece of advice to give, but to put my own spin on that, I think a lot of times people, especially young entrepreneurs, they go to folks that they are eventually going to sell to or folks that are the gatekeeper to an opportunity for them and they try to get them to be a mentor and that just doesn't really work. I've found that going to people that don't have the possibility of, like there's no opportunity for me or my company to sell to them and finding people that have maybe made an exit, gone all the way through a process, make the best candidates for mentors because there's no implicit, like when is this guy gonna try to make a sales pitch to me? And it's, you know, you really get an opportunity to ask questions like, where did you screw up? Can I learn more about those stories? What were your big successes? What made you successful? And there's never that fear on their part. If I go to coffee with this guy, he's going to hit me up for a He's going to try to sell me on contract. something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So that would be my biggest piece of advice because those people, especially once you build that trust and especially if you don't ask for anything, just conversation, you know, opportunities come up organically and without you having to ask. So that would be the biggest thing I'd say. No, it's really important. And it's a good twist that you put on it because it is cliche, get you, you know, a good set of mentors, but nobody ever tells you who you should be looking for or how to go about that. And, you know, honestly, I kind of fell into the bucket, like in my early days, I was like, Oh, get you a mentor. It's just bullshit, you know, Instagram entrepreneur advice. But really over the last several years, I have got some mentors and it's just a game changer. So if you're listening to this and you are and you know, and you should start this process way before, you know, yeah. before you jump into the river, you know, go find these people now and develop those relationships with them. And, you know, over, over time, if you decide to go run your own startup or your own venture, or you just want to, you know, excel in your career, you have the, that network to lean back on and to really help navigate your way through that. And if you're one of those uh, individuals who, you know, feels like you could provide value to, you know, some of the startup founders that either we have on the show or that we have in our network, feel free to reach out to, you know, either Colin or myself and we can kind of plug you in with somebody who we think would be, you know, kind of appropriate yeah. match, you know, that is extremely gratifying to mentor, you know, absolutely. Yeah, speak, I mean, I've been coming on speaking of that, Brian, where can people find you? They can find me on our website. We've got a contact form, com. Our company has a Twitter and Instagram account. Okay. Are you on LinkedIn? I'm on LinkedIn. Hit me up on LinkedIn. And my email is rbaker at com. So anybody that wants to learn more about drones or how they can work with us, love to talk to them. Yeah. Be on the lookout. I'm going to convince Brian to let us come out and see some drones. We'll take some videos. So hey, make a good time out of it. <laughs> cool, man. Great conversation. It was good having you here, bud. Yeah, thanks, guys. Cut, 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 cut.